So, um, welcome everyone. I hope that we've everyone's now had a chance to uh, to get settled, get uh, logged in. It's my very great pleasure to welcome you all to the first event in our program of Sawanaga Science 2021. And we at Dias, I may say, are extremely grateful for your support. Now, Sawanaga Science is an annual mini festival which is created by the researchers at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies, or DIAS. And this year is the fourth year that we have held the festival. And it brings together researchers from each of DIAS's disciplines. So Celtic studies, uh, theoretical physics, and cosmic physics, comprising astronomy, astrophysics, and geophysics. And it offers an imaginative series of free events to mark the ancient feast of Samhain, which forms, I suppose, the remote basis for today's Halloween. And the festival is therefore held around and about the date of Samhain, 1st of November, and some, but not all, of the events sometimes focus on themes relevant to the time of year. And this year's theme for Samhainaga Science is exploring the dark side of science and Celtic heritage. You can find the full programme on uh, dias.ie Sawanaga Science, but hopefully there'll be no dark side emerging today. Now, just two short announcements before we start. First, you will get a chance to put your own questions or to have your own questions answered uh, at the end of the session. And if you have any questions or queries or comments on what you are hearing, please feel free to enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. And at the end of the session, we will try to answer whatever's there uh, to the best of our abilities. The second announcement, and this is important, is that we are recording um, this event. So it is my duty to inform you that the event is being recorded. And so to the afternoon's event. Nihanse, the story so far. Broadcasting Ireland's Celtic past. Dr. Nika Stam, creator of the School of Celtic Studies podcast, joins us to talk about the challenge of bringing research in Irish and Celtic studies to new audiences. And she will tell us how podcasting helped young researchers during the COVID-19 lockdowns and how podcasting might inspire researchers of the future. And along the way, she may also tell us the meaning of Nihansa and why she chose it as the name of her podcast. Now, Dr. Nika Stam is a postdoctoral researcher in Celtic studies at the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands. Before that, however, she was with us here in Dias. And Nika held one of our O'Donovan scholarships. Now, these are three-year positions which we offer to young scholars to allow them the chance to pursue their research after they have finished their PhD degrees. Nika then was with us between 2018 and May of this year when she left us for Utrecht. But she has very kindly agreed to pay a return visit today, for which we are extremely grateful. Nika, you're very welcome here today. Thank you very much. Uh, and and thank you, you very much for the invite. It's good to see you again as well thank and you. to be back at Dias, if only virtually. <laughs> yes, alas, we can't do these things uh, in the proper way, but we will do our best through the uh, electronic way. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Why don't we just start in, by talking a little bit about your own research and your own interests. Now, for the benefit of the audience, I'll just say that Nika wrote her PhD thesis on the subject of the typology of code switching in the commentary to the failure of Angusa. So perhaps, Nika, you could start by explaining a little bit about your research and particularly what code switching is, why it's important and interesting. Yes, well, um, it's a very, very broad topic, so I'll have to be very careful where to begin. And also because I can't see who is participating, usually I can kind of see, oh, maybe we have a multilingual audience um, so I can, you know, ask some things or, or um, uh, uh, say some things that might be recognizable to you about bilingualism, because code switching has to do with bilingualism. But for the 
I'm just assuming there's a bilingual audience because we're online and I'm sure there's an international uh, community participating. Uh, so code switching is basically what happens uh, when people use two or more languages in the same utterance. So when they're speaking in the same sentence or in the same story, or even if, if people are using two languages in a conversation. So I might be talking English to Barry, but he might answer me in Welsh because he knows Welsh. That is considered code switching as well. Um, and that is something that has been the, the subject of much research over uh, well, the past couple of decades in spoken languages or, or in speech. Uh, but what I've tried to do when I was working at Dias as well, uh, and before that in my PhD, is try and find out if uh, this mixing of languages in, in one utterance or in one story uh, could also be found in written texts. Uh, and that was not entirely my idea. Uh, that had been done um, for, for example, the classical period as well. A scholar called Jane Adams had looked at tombstones from ancient Rome and, and seen how people even then and there switched between several languages. Uh, but as a Celticist and as a medievalist, I wanted to look at medieval Ireland. Um, and I looked, uh, like Barry said before, at uh, a commentary text, which is basically a text um, explaining another text. So um, it is the commentary to the Fehler Eingesse, which is a ninth century saints calendar, uh, which lists the saints um, that uh, are to be celebrated for each day. And the commentary then uh, explains uh, the difficult language of, of that calendar, but also uh, gives you bonus material, as it were, about these saints. So maybe nice anecdotes uh, about what happened to them or what kind of miracles they worked, that type of thing. Uh, and that commentary is uh, bilingual. So uh, the medieval scribes who composed that commentary used Latin and Irish. And I wanted to see if they would do if they did that in the same way that we might switch languages in a conversation. Uh, and turns out they did. Well, sort of. So uh, that's, I suppose, the gist. Uh, but if you want to have the particulars, uh, there's a really good podcast episode about that. <laughs> no, I'll probably, I'll probably get to that as well, because we, we made one episode about bilingualism. Uh, and I think the thing that I loved about code switching or love about code switching and bilingualism is that... Um, well, for, for a certain period of time, it was frowned upon and seen as a sign of bad language when people would uh, use another language in their speech. Uh, but it is actually a very important and beautiful phenomenon which learns or teaches us a lot because it can teach us a lot about the way grammars work in our mind. So if you if you speak two languages and you mix them in speech, it's interesting for linguists to see which grammar takes precedence or which uh, rules are followed. So in that sense, it's really important. And it also teaches us much about how we use speech in general, because often code switching has a particular function. So it can be used to highlight something or to exclude someone for, from a conversation. So if Barry would start talking to Welsh, uh, talking in Welsh to me, he would exclude a large part maybe of the audience. Uh, so that's a function that code switching may have. It can also be inclusive. Uh, I'm speaking English, not Dutch, so as to include all of you. Um, so code switching is is a very beautiful and important phenomenon. And, and that's what, I, uh, what I've always loved about it. So that's sort of the research so far in a nutshell, uh, if that's, mm -hmm. yeah. Is that all right? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yes. Do great. you have any... Um, um... You've done a very good oh, job of explaining what code switching is. I do is. have an example. Uh, oh, I know I, this sounds like, you know, we're doing a very spontaneous conversation, but I did have some, <laughs> some slides prepared. <laughs> so it's not, it's a bit, uh, it's not all as it seems. I will now have to change my slide, which will make the music start probably, but I'll see if it, oh no, it works. I have some modern examples here, which first started me on my research topic. So this is actually... A, a commercial from Boss Aaron, which is which I saw years ago, uh, yeah. which says "Get their good tuppy uh, with Boss Aaron," which I thought was a lovely quote. Which uh, and it tells you a lot about Irish society. Uh, it tells you that it is assumed by the people in Boss Aaron that people will know enough Irish to understand good tuppy. Otherwise, it's a useless commercial. Um, and below. You see the sentence that I heard when I was staying in the Gwiltach during a summer school, uh, which was the youngest son in the family that I was staying in, who said, I'm walking to my football shoes. 
uh, which also started me thinking, I was thinking, why is there no limition on football shoes? And why is there <laughs> football shoes and not broga, whatever? Uh, so those are modern examples. Uh, and then I also have uh, an Irish example. Uh, so you can see below, you can see the, uh, the manuscript. So um, this is a 15th century Irish manuscript. Um, and the image of which comes from the Irish Script on Screen project, which is also hosted at uh, Dias. You can see the website on the on the top corner uh, there. Uh, and then you can also see uh, the sentence um, uh, that I chose as an example. Um, uh, it's in a story about St. Morgain, uh, Morgain um, uh, which in the calendar of Oingas, I think, is for the 27th of January. I can't see everything now because my, my own head is in front of it. Oh, yes. OK. Uh, ah, the wonders of Zoom. Um, so you can see the Irish sentence, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. how it starts in Irish, and then how from from sort of roughly halfway through, it just ends in Latin, uh, where mm-hmm. it goes uh, et of or August, Naravit um, Omnia Accident in Aquis. Um, and she related all the things that had happened to her in the water. This sounds, I'm sure, intriguing if you don't know the story. So if you want to look it up, there's an edition of the commentary to the Fader Eingesse, where you can read the story of uh, Morheim um, and see what had actually happened to her in the water if you if you want to. Thank you, Nika. That's great. I'm certainly uh... Very interested in this subject. Of course, it's very familiar to me from Wales, where you know, we have Welsh-speaking areas where, no matter how much Welsh you speak, you go into a shop and speak Welsh for all, you know, all the way through the conversation. But the numbers and the and the, um, the paying money will always, always be in English. Oh, that's so indeed. interesting. <laughs> indeed, and no matter because, of course, all the native speakers didn't go to Welsh language school, and they learned their arithmetic in English. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, this yeah. kind of phenomenon is deeply embedded in in, in bilingual um, communities all the way through history and down to yes, the present day. Indeed, yeah, because there's examples from medieval Wales as well, so uh, and, and many medieval communities. So it's not um, Ireland in that sense wasn't exceptional in this period uh, for being so bilingual. Uh, it is exceptional in the amount of material bilingual material that we have. So that that is very interesting. Yeah. That's great, Nika. That's a very clear account of your of your research and how, indeed, how interesting and relevant it is to to um, the world outside uh, the uh, world of manuscripts, as it were. Now, um, I know that you're interested in the challenge of explaining academic work to different audiences. It might be younger people who are thinking maybe of a career uh, in our field or any um, other field of academia. It might also be people from outside who. Uh, who um, really would like to know more about our work, but maybe are, are a little put off by the, uh, the more abstruse kinds of publication that we favour. <laughs> so I wonder, um, maybe could you tell us a little bit about the podcast that you came up with? And how did you uh, come to the idea of making Ni answer? Yes. Uh, well, it, it has a long history, I think, because uh, I was thinking about how of course, leading up to this, how we started the podcast. And I remember before the lockdown, when we were all in the Institute uh, and we would have our lunch downstairs in the kitchen uh, that we have uh, at the Institute, um, the conversations that we'd have would be so very interesting. Um, and our librarian, Margaret, would, uh, would join us and she'd always joke, you know, you should make a lunch podcast out of all the things you discuss over your sandwich. Uh, and I think we're all thinking, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. But, you know, you never have the time and there's so much things going on when you're in Dublin or, you know, in Ireland in general, there's always conferences and papers to write. So it never really uh, happened but then of course uh, lockdown happened uh, and um, I think I've I've explained this as well when I was interviewed in the Celtic students podcast we'll mention them later as well uh, but I went home for a long weekend on St. Patrick's Day um, and that was the weekend of the lockdown so I wasn't able to go back to Ireland um, uh, during uh, the entirety of lockdown so I felt kind of isolated from uh, from well the community I had around me in Dublin, 
and I was sort of craving for a new project, you know, that will make you happy during lockdown because it was so dire, everything. Uh, and I thought, why not start uh, start this podcast now and just see if it would happen? So that's when um, we started talking, uh, myself, Margaret, who, uh, who would mention that during our lunch breaks, and then Christina Cleary as well, who's uh, a big podcast fan, I happen to know, um, uh, as am I. So we started to talk about um, what kind of format would be good what we would need like things like the tune and the logo and um uh, guests obviously <laughs> i mean we weren't sure if people would be willing to sit down with me for an hour and just talk um but that worked out really well and that's really how uh how things got started i think yeah excellent and um so you've told us about the idea a little bit about the way you went around it um what were the things you said some of the things you had to do um how did you go about this did you consult did you need help to do this or was it so yeah we did have a bit of help so well we had christina and margaret the librarian uh christina by the way is uh, one of our other o'donovan uh, scholars uh, so we did the brainstorming in the beginning and then when we needed the logo and you know the more technical sound bits uh thankfully we all knew people who knew how to do these things uh because i'm definitely not a sound technician and uh, also not a graphic designer um so um my sister and my brother-in-law are both in music so he was willing or they were willing to write us the tune uh, and then christina's brother was willing to make us uh, the logo which was uh, fantastic uh, and i think we'll um I'll, I'll i'll play the tune a bit further on maybe or I'm not sure um uh what the time the right time is for that but um for the tune we thought it'd be really nice to um to have not just a tune but also a link to the institute in it and to mm-hmm. the type of work we do so um my brother-in-law in the tune inserted material that um came from the glore project which is also a dice project uh, which is basically recordings of Irish speakers from the 50s, uh, which my colleague Andrea Palandri was working on at the time. So he sent me some sound files uh, and um, those were integrated into the tune. So the, the people you hear speaking in the tune are, are Irish speakers from the from the 50s uh, that have been recorded for study, but are also now very groovy. Very groovy. Yes. I think I have to listen to this. <laughs> to uh, to play it maybe for us. Oh yes, I'll I'll see if I can I can find uh, the slide because it might be a bit further down. Oh yes, I I also have a making of video. Oh, right. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's interested in that, but I'll just I'll give it a brief play and yes, see what do. happens. <laughs> So that is the groove provided by my brother-in-law. <laughs> I'll take your word for it that it's groovy. Yeah. <laughs> and then this area. is uh, the below. I have the tune with the, the fragments from, from Glore in it. So I'll, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll give that a wee play as well if it wants to. Yeah. I would just say I'm not used to that word. Well, that's the beginning of the tune anyway. Uh, and we use them again in the outro. So, uh, yeah. yeah, fair play to those speakers from the 50s. <laughs> if only they knew. <laughs> I'm sure they would be delighted. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> so, um, tell us then, I have to ask about the name. Yes. Nihansa. What's all that about? What's all that about? Well, it is medieval Irish. Uh, and it is actually a very common phrase in medieval Irish texts because it was part of uh, a didactic frame used by medieval Irish uh, scholars to teach their students. Um, so what we still do in class today is you ask your students a question um, and they have to answer. Or, well, if they don't know, you have to answer. But we all know as teachers that if you ask questions, things will stick in your mind better. And that was actually something that was done in the Middle Ages as well. So in Irish texts, we also, um, often find uh, 
um, uh, something starting on kisht, meaning question, um, uh, which will then introduce to you a question or, or an interesting factoid, uh, which is then followed by the answer, um, uh, which literally means uh, not difficult. So I've always thought this was a really nice sort of confident phrase uh, to answer your questions with, even though in time the phrase rather comes to stand for something more general, like, well, as a matter of fact, something like that. But the, the literal and original meaning is this is not difficult or it is easy to say. And I remember when I was a student in Utrecht as well, uh, which is where I did my BA, uh, and I first came across this, I just, we all, all in our year, we loved it so much that we just kept shouting it into class as well when the teacher would ask a question. Yes, we were really annoying. <laughs> but it was just, I just I think it's such a nice, like I said, confident way of looking at things. And also this whole didactic background, I thought kind of suited the podcast. Uh, and as well as that, I know, well, when I moved to Ireland, I noticed that a lot of people, if you tell them, you know, I do medieval Irish or I look at Irish texts, a lot of people in Ireland would be very afraid of Irish or, or things that have to do with the language. Uh, so I really wanted to show, you know, what we do is not difficult. It's, you know, it's fun and uh, it's interesting. So that's, uh, that's how we came by Nianza. Nianza. I've oh, yes. Oh, we have manuscripts. Uh, oh, sorry. Yes, do show us some, do show us some examples of it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So we have two, um, two examples here. I don't know if the, the top one is, is very small. Uh, but you might just make out... Uh, it's going to appear at the screen very closely here. Yes, yes, sorry, sorry about that. Uh, it is yellow and circled, so you might just see mm -hmm. it. And then the one below, um, you can see in the middle of the circle, just has an N and an I with a stroke over it, um, which means that it is abbreviated. So it stands for the phrase Nianza, but it's um, it was so common, this phrase, that describes would just uh, write dot and I um, marker dot for Nianza because they write it so often and it would save you a lot of space on the on the parchment. Oh, indeed. I've often felt this was a teacher's phrase, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's not difficult, honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> that's it. <laughs> of, uh, perhaps unplaced, uh, unfounded optimism. On the yeah, well, yeah, that could be an additional layer to uh, to the <laughs> use of Nianza for the podcast. <laughs> really <Indeed>. believe us. <laughs> That's right. Uh, there's even actually one one old Welsh example of it um, in the phrase Nidavroith. Oh, is, I didn't know that. No, it's um, there's only one example. because I don't have many old Welsh manuscripts, but one can't help feeling either it was just as popular in the medieval Welsh classroom, or maybe a medieval Irish scholar was teaching in that particular school. Because we do have plenty of evidence that uh, Irish um, scholars uh, worked in Welsh churches in the early Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah. So it's a mystery, but it's certainly there once. It is definitely another, maybe, maybe, I say definitely, but I mean maybe, uh, let's be scholarly about this, another <laughs> sign of language contact and uh, intercultural <laughs> communications, perhaps. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, certainly it can't be a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. Exactly lies behind it, I'm not sure. Or the Welsh just think that everything is really difficult. Is <laughs> 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 But you'll be the judge of that, Bert. <laughs> I couldn't say. <laughs> so, um, that's... We've gone through the technical part and the name and the uh, the fun tune. Yeah. Um, I suppose that brings us to actually actually getting down and getting the podcast started. So, what did you get out of the experience of uh, of doing these? Oh, I have a I have a wonderful full slide about that, uh, which you will probably hate. Um, oh, sorry. No, nope, <laughs> not more brother-in-law. We've seen you. That's all right. Um, it will just start automatically. Okay, okay. so <laughs> yes, as you can see, Barry is in here, uh, as are a lot of my colleagues. Um, what I got out of the experience was basically just um, sort of scholarly happy hour, I think, where I could just sit and chat to all my colleagues who I couldn't see because of lockdown. And we could just have a chat about research. Uh, and that was really, really, um, I don't know, it was really, uh, I really enjoyed that. 
Uh, besides, of course, learning about everybody's uh, research in more detail, because, of course, you would talk to each other in the hallways and you, you might get, you know, a paragraph about this, a paragraph about that, about that. But really sitting down with your colleagues and talking about their stuff for an hour. Uh, there's no excuse for me to just stop you in the hallway and do that. So the podcast was a great excuse for me to uh, to talk to everyone. Uh, and you can see here, Christina was our first uh, guinea pig. So I'm eternally grateful to her for that, where we were just uh, we were still <laughs> playing around with all the gear, as you can see from the from the pictures. But uh, yeah, that's that's uh, I suppose what I uh, what I get out of it. Yeah, certainly. Um, I can't help uh, noticing that I'm the only one there who looks as though he's in a dentist waiting room. <laughs> Um, everyone else looks really happy to be doing this. Yes, see. yes. I was well, very, very happy as well, by the way. Do with that what you will. Okay. <laughs> when I'm facing an unexpected situation. Yes. <laughs> so, it's not in any way a, a reflection on the podcast, which actually I personally, as a guest, also gained a surprising amount out of it because it's been a long time since I thought about the questions you asked me, which, which were what got me into this subject and why, why I'm here and why I do this. Oh, that's lovely to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Because these are questions that we ought really to be asking most days, most weeks, at least during our lives. Uh, but of course the pressure of yes. know, doing actual work and deadlines yeah. and, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. mean that we don't, but I would just like to, to put on record that it was a very worthwhile experience and I would encourage other future guests not to be as shy as I look in that picture <laughs> definitely uh, that is great yeah and also cool. what I really liked is that we had a set format where I, I would ask questions in old Irish you know quite general and um about like Barry said how you came to be a Celtist or a medievalist and uh, and where you think your research was going but during a conversation things would just develop really nicely and really random topics will come up and I really love that in uh, in conversation and everybody's sort of podcast became a different entity with a different atmosphere and different topics and yeah that was really nice to see. Your focus was very much on I mean the way you worked it was to focus on the individual as the fo as, and and to bring in the research as, as a profile of that individual as it were so you Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Also, when because when I came to the Institute, I came to the Institute from Utrecht University, where, um, well, we're the only university in the Netherlands where Celtic studies is being taught. So we were a very, uh, we're, we're not tiny, but we're also not big. So when I came to Dublin and to the Institute and to Ireland in general, it was like the Walhalla of Celticists. <laughs> like everybody was there and there were so many other young scholars and postdocs and PhDs and early career uh, researchers that, and I was so uh, intrigued by everybody's research uh, that, yeah, I really, I really wanted to showcase uh, all the amazing stuff that was uh, going on around me as it were. Do you think that by focusing on individual scholars, you managed to, to, as it were, open a gateway for people to understand the research we do through... I hope so. <laughs> I don't know. I suppose the, the, the listeners uh, should be the judge of that. I hope we had, Eddie. I, I, I saw some... Uh, I've seen some comments on Twitter about people who enjoyed it. I'm glad nobody said on twitter they didn't enjoy it which is of course also an option um but yeah i i hope so i i think we were myself and all the guests were very mindful to try and not use jargon as much because you know when you're among colleagues it's very easy to slip into you know assuming people will know what a manuscript is or or parsing or you know all these things that we do on a daily basis so we were very we, we tried very hard to not use jargon and to make everything really accessible. And I really hoped it worked. Um, so I'll be happy to hear <laughs> if there's any listeners uh, tuning in today, if that, if, if we succeeded in doing that, because um, that was definitely the aim to bring it to people who would have an interest in Celtic studies, but who wouldn't um, have access to the articles that we write or um, uh, the conferences that we have and those types of things. Yeah. Talk a little bit about um, 
how you approached um, speaking to younger scholars at the same time, maybe as trying to speak to the general public? Yeah, that's an, an interesting point because uh, when we started, uh, I really didn't, like our, our aim really was to bring it to people who were not in academia. <laughs> but then um, when we started to launch the episodes, we got a really good response on Twitter from other colleagues in the field and other libraries and universities. So that was really nice to see. And then uh, I was interviewed for the Celtic Students podcast. I think I have a slide about that. So that'll be a relief to everyone to have their faces again gone from the, from the screen. And uh, this is the Celtic Students podcast which is run by the Celtic Students Association. Um, and uh, we did a sort of a, a podcast crossover. Uh, we thought that would be nice. So they interviewed me about Nianza and, and uh, about my work. And that's when I sort of learned that um, a lot of uh, people who would be with the Celtic Students Association really enjoyed the podcast as well as younger scholars and students um, because it provided them uh, with role models and a very sort of varied um, perspective on how to become an academic I suppose and how uh, how to do scholarly work because everyone who was on the podcast had a different story of how they became an academic uh, so some of us just you know did their BA, MA, PhD, O'Donovan scholarship just you know one straight line but others had internships uh, study abroad um, breaks in between or you know started out with no interest in Celtic studies so <laughs> yeah <laughs> we established that one in my interview <laughs> <laughs> no one's looking at you Barry you know <laughs> my confession yeah, so... is that I didn't actually even enjoy doing Welsh in school I <laughs> in the podcast it took me quite a few years to come to come round to to now being uh, Professor of medieval Welsh, but we'll we'll save that for the podcast. But you're yes, right. Yeah. So if you're if you're curious, listen to various episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Thank I thought that was just wonderful to hear in that other podcast that actually students and other young scholars were actually taking something out of it as well, um, in terms of their you know career development and ideas for their research. So yeah, I, I really I really enjoyed. Uh, Enjoyed hearing that. Yeah, it's very good of you to show the competition. Yeah. Oh, no, <laughs> we're, um, we're a team. <laughs> we're a team. We're all a team. We are all. Yeah. It's, it's important to say we are all a team. Um, exactly. Across yeah. um, Celtic studies, universities, and and, and um, the humanities in general. Yeah. And that's an important principle that that I think these podcasts underline. Could you just say it looks like they. The Celtic students took a different tack to you. So, what do you think the the differences are, and what do you think the um, the different approaches? How they how they both work? Do they work equally well? Uh, I well, oof, that's hard to judge because I can judge their podcast, which is I think excellent. Uh, but then I'd be very uh, trepidatious to <laughs> be the judge of my own podcast. Um, but um, I suppose the different in approach the difference in approach is that they would uh, switch presenters. Um, which is great because it allows them to use all the Celtic languages as well. So there are podcasts in Breton and Welsh and Cornish and, you know, Irish, Scots Gaelic. So it really allows them to have a very broad perspective on Celtic studies, which I couldn't uh, provide. And I suppose as the Nianza Dias SEA, or School of Celtic Studies podcast, um, I suppose the name already, you know, tells you where we were quite... Um, uh, I suppose confined at that stage in any case to the people who were working at the School of Celtic Studies. Um, uh, but except for one, the, the bilingualism episode uh, where, um, where I invited two guests who were not uh, part of Dias. Uh, but the reason for that was that we were organizing a conference on medieval multilingualism and we wanted to celebrate that. So we got two experts on, on medieval and modern um, uh, multilingualism on the podcast. Uh, so I suppose those are are the main uh, differences. And what I really like about the Celtic Students podcast as well is that they always ask you for a recommendation at the end. So um, what type of Celtic 
source or resource or film or book uh, or whatnot would you recommend and you get a great list out of uh, you know listening to the earlier podcasts and writing down what all your <laughs> colleagues and students are uh, are recommending so I really enjoy that uh, idea and I might steal it for my next podcast right. <laughs> no I won't no you're great Oh, I say to the students, yeah. <laughs> I'm quite glad I wasn't put on the spot in that particular way. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I put you on the spot with translating Welsh poetry, if I remember correctly, indeed, yes, so that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so just a little, I thought, how challenging is it to present to people outside of academia? Um, well, what I, I suppose my main what I found most challenging is that the perception of all things Celtic um, that is common outside of academia is very different from what we actually do on a daily basis. So you have these memes. I don't know if you've seen them where uh, you have a, what people think I do, what uh, you know my parents think I do, what I actually do, those types of memes. And with what people think I do, there's always, you know, for Celtic studies, Druids and, and whatnot. Uh, so, even if you Google Celtic, you'll, you'll either come to a football club or to a website that might contain information that is either outdated or, or just fantastical, maybe even, um, which, which is okay as long as it's clear that it's the case. But it makes it very hard to, as a scholar of Celtic studies, to compete with these things. Because it's very hard to be cooler than a druid, <laughs> I think, or a fairy, I don't know, you know, that type of thing. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, so I find I always find that challenging um, to make sure that if you're if you're bringing the research that we do to a broader audience, how do you not disappoint uh, with what you do? So what I really wanted to do with the podcast was show all these other things that you might not expect from um, from medieval Irish or Welsh uh, literature to bring those to the fore and also. Um, show that it's surprising or uh, uh, interesting or varied or complex, uh, even if there's you know no druids involved or uh, something like that. So uh, I found that uh, I found that challenging, and I hoped it worked. But there's so much in the stuff that we do that is just intriguing and uh, uh, and gives you a very different perspective on the Middle Ages. Uh, for example, the poem you read out about the and the pilgrim's wife who was very worried about her return that just brings you know the humanity of that period to the fore uh, as well as the conversation I had with Mial Hoyne about bardic poetry where he told us about you know how bardic poets would write uh, the water would be as high or I can't remember exactly but the water would be as high as the swan's knees and he went out to the canal to see if swans actually <laughs> had knees you know all these <laughs> things that are just you'd never think of these things when you think Celtic studies but they're all there and they're all really interesting and really cool I think so uh, I hope uh, we we got to uh, we didn't disappoint in that sense with the podcast do swans have knees? <laughs> According to Michal, yes. I haven't actually I verified this myself, but he did. So I'll, I'll take his word for it. <laughs> I'm sure I've seen the legs bending. So. Yeah, exactly. It must be what? Must be, must be right. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It's, a, it's all human life is here. Yes. Um, and what we are fundamentally doing is looking at the texts of the past. And the past is everyone who's ever lived. Yes. Most of the human beings who've ever lived are not here now, so... Yeah. It's always been my view that we owe them uh, a, a certain amount of our attention. Yes, and exactly. A certain part of, of academia and the humanities in particular should be devoted to the people who aren't here anymore. Yes. Because we won't be here in the future. And I would quite like our period to be thought about and analysed later on. I don't suppose it will be entirely a positive uh, verdict either. <laughs> No, more than that, it is on, say, the social status, the social structures of, of the Middle Ages, the, you know, the deep inequalities and the extreme difficulty of life. But nevertheless, it's, it's, um, we, we owe it to the past to, yes. to spend a little bit of time and thought on those who have gone before us. And when in the Middle Ages we have the luck that finally we have from Ireland and Wales and so on, finally we have text. We have actual people's words we can work with from the past. And I've always thought that's um, 
was just so important. And even as a child, I was amazed, amazed by the idea that you could read words of somebody from hundreds of years ago. Yes, yeah. I, that, that fired my imagination extraordinarily. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think you brought that out very well in the podcast. Oh, I hope so. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I did enjoy reading out the, the, the poem of uh, Lois Lincothy, although you didn't yes. part of the translation. <laughs> Until you had to translate it, yes. <laughs> I hope I put it myself tolerably. <laughs> but yes, that's a typical example. I mean, it's a, 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 a poem of a, of a woman, but not written by her, but comp- commissioned by her to express her fear as her husband's on pilgrimage in, in um, uh, Santiago in Spain. Yeah. And she's back home in Wales waiting for him. And it's, a, as I said in the podcast, it's not a safe thing to do in the Middle Ages to, to go on that journey. And it's not safe no. to be on your own. As Very a long and arduous uh, journey. Yeah. yeah. Exactly the kind of thing that you, you, I hope you brought out very well in the, in, I thought you brought out very well in the, in the podcast. Did you have any, um, I have to ask you this, did you have any friends and family members who volunteered or were volunteered to listen to it? (laughs) I think my parents tried, yes, Uh, Mm -hmm. but uh, I think it was too much English for them. (laughs) I I can forgive them for that. Uh, Then also my sister's dog is uh, very soothed (laughs) by people talking about medieval manuscripts, so she plays it a lot for him (laughs) she's going away i don't know you know i'll just mention it here um and then uh, i have some welsh neighbors over here which i think i also mentioned in the celtic students podcast and they would be very you know they'd even be asking me like when, why is your new podcast not up uh, <laughs> it should be up by now yeah so uh yeah there there are some uh among the friends and family but uh yeah it's a limited circle i think <laughs> Well, yeah, of course, yeah. I do remember my parents also. Uh, they really enjoyed it, and I think oh, it was good for them because it's, I find it very hard to explain to them what I do. Yeah, yeah. If I publish something in English, I put, I give it to them, and they they, they bravely <laughs> try to look at it. But it's, uh, yes, yeah. But articles, like we've said before, I think are so different. That's you know when we go all scholarly and we have a bunch of footnotes and difficult words and you know that's that's just very different than just sitting down and having an informal chat and yeah yeah and these were of course all done in lockdown yes that's yeah. important to remember when you know it was a very it was a difficult time for everybody of course we in a sense are fairly lucky as academics and it's a, it's inconvenient and isolating but didn't have it as bad as a lot of people who had to go out to work. Yes, exactly. Or even worse, you know, people who worked in the health service and those who well, suffered personal loss during that time. But even so, the podcast, I think, did valuable work in keeping morale up in, in our small community. I hope so. And for me, in any case, it did. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I'm very grateful for that. Certainly. I enjoyed listening to them during the... Uh, during the uh, lockdown. Good. On your two and a half K walk. <laughs> yes. I A hundred yeah. circles around the block. <laughs> yeah. The advantage of these, of course, is you can take them on your phone and yeah. listen to them in the park, as I did. Yeah. Who knows? There might be people listening now in the park. Or, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a new world. Um, yes. Um, digital technology offers, I suppose, extraordinary opportunities to communicate um, around the world um did you find that these podcasts got an audience in the netherlands beyond your (laughs) i don't know actually and i don't know um i don't know i don't think we have stats on that um we do of course have a a student community here in the netherlands Mm -hmm. students who who are at Utrecht university uh so i don't know if they listen to it 
uh, but they might be uh, listening to it. Um, we have uh, we have a foundation for Celtic studies here, the Van Hamel uh, Foundation, named after the first professor of Celtic studies that we had in the Netherlands. Uh, so there might be people listening there. Uh, but I think still, even though the level of bilingualism in the Netherlands is quite high, I think for maybe a more general audience, it would be very English. <laughs> Perhaps so that might be a barrier for people who are interested in Celtic studies, uh, but might not uh, have the uh, the hosting, as they say in Dutch, as an accent, or Belgian Dutch, uh, a nice code switch there. They might not have the I don't know the energy or the dedication to uh, to listen to an hour of uh, of English chat. Um, remember this word. Remember yes, it's a, it's a great word. I stole it from the Belgians. Yeah. Belgians, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, I suppose I'd better ask about the future of the podcast. We've we've, we've had one series. Um, yes, uh, we did end on the note saying there might be a second series, but uh, as you said, Barry, I have left the institute. Uh, <laughs> much to my dismay. No, <laughs> very sad to see you go. Uh, as was I, uh, and it's um, it's something that. Um, I suppose it's it's very normal in academe uh, now, but before as well, but maybe more so now to have temporary projects. So you apply for a grant that'll give you maybe one, two or three years or maybe four years of research that you could do somewhere, but then you have to move on again, which is, you know, what the O'Donovan scholarship is for. So I spent three years doing research at Dias, which was great. Um, but then, you know, I move on and then... Uh, you don't know what's going to happen to it. So, uh, but maybe, you know, um, with a whole new uh, generation of, of um, O'Donovan scholars and maybe Bergen fellows, maybe a second season uh, would be uh, in the books. But I don't know. I look, I look at you for that, uh, Barry. You'll have to drag people into it. <laughs> <laughs> this is true, yes. Uh, we would like to, to try to carry this on, but we'll have to uh, look for... I suppose, uh, someone to carry the baton, which you've carried so so well so far, of which we're extremely grateful. So if there's any volunteers in the audience today <laughs> for presenting a podcast, <laughs> raise your hand or send an email to Barry. <laughs> Hopefully I guess going to ask people to do if they wish to, or if anyone's interested in taking it on, certainly. Because I know, I know there is a new uh, O'Donovan scholars, and uh, there is an uh, advertisement at the moment for another O'Donovan mm. scholarship. So there'll be lots of new research going on at the institute. So that'll be, you know, uh, that would be interesting new uh, material, I'd say, for a second season. Indeed, we certainly have new people who need to who need to be grilled. <laughs> I, I wouldn't grilled. use the word grill. <laughs> <laughs> If I get grilled, everyone gets grilled. <laughs> That's great. Um, I have to ask you, did you have a favourite moment? Ah, well, of course, well, the politically correct answer would be, they're all of my favourites, and they're, they are. The right uh, yes. But um, I did have some fragments that I um, selected. I don't know if we have the time for them. I can't see the time uh, here, so uh, we've got twelve minutes. So if you want to play at least one, we'll see. Okay, I can. I can play one, and um, uh, maybe you can put the slide somewhere or something. So if people want, they can listen to the other ones. Yeah. Uh, so I suppose, well, the one I'll, I'll, I had one fragment about Anne Marie O'Brien, who's the director of the Irish Script on Screen project that I mentioned earlier, yeah. and she talks about the technological developments that have taken place over the past twenty years. That that project has been around and how um, when they were uploading medieval manuscripts, they knocked out a server in Oxford, I think, <laughs> which I just thought was wonderful that, you know, medieval manuscripts still managed to knock out a server, uh, you know, centuries after their composition. So that's that fragment, but I'll, I'll play the one that's closest to my heart, I suppose, about code switching, uh, which was from our final episode with Jacopo Bizani and uh, Teresa Lin, uh, which was on historical and modern code switching. And they, I invited them both because Jacopo Bizani has looked at uh, Irish Latin code switching as well in the early Middle Ages. Uh, but Teresa Lynn has looked at code switching on Twitter between Irish and English and other languages. So I hoped that 
you know, some interaction would come up and maybe some uh, differences or things that were the same would come up. And it actually worked really well. And I think the moment that it worked best was this sort of brief uh, fragment. So I'll, I'll play that for you now. Uh, and when you start doing research, you go into a bit of a, a rabbit hole. Oh, and that's yes. where I find your thesis. <laughs> and then I'm just like, oh my God, it's just so cool. The monks used to code switch between, <laughs> between Latin and medieval Irish. Yeah. How, how brilliant is this? Because I think in the paper that Kevin and I published, we were trying to show that um, code switch is not a new invention. And a lot of people... Uh, Understandably, they're protective of the language, but they can be very negative towards code switching and say that it pollutes the language or it's a new thing that the new generation are bringing in that's going to damage it. Yeah. And to be able to point back and say, no, actually, this has happened in medieval ages in Ireland. <laughs> Latin yeah. and medieval Irish coexisted and it seemed to be fine, no big deal. Why does it have to be a big deal now in this forum, right? Yeah. Um, and on top of that, what was great was in any other, and it's very minimal work done on code switching in Irish in general, in mm, modern Irish. That's interesting. About um, that. And a lot of it is, a lot of it's focused on spoken Irish, so transcripts of speech, which is totally different to looking at tweets where people are writing and intentionally switching at particular stages. Um, at the time I did the work, we had the 140 character limit for speech, so... Mm potentially some choices might be to do with space. So in Irish, usually we need more words than in English, so maybe this is fiction. Yeah, or even characters. characters. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Exactly. Um, and so, um, yeah, it, there's so much in there that you could, you know, delve mm -hmm. into. But what I was doing at that time was just sort of like, a, more, more like a pilot study to see, is this an area worth looking yeah. into? Yeah. Um, and, I, and it I, was, and so, yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. I wanted to say I could see Jacopo nodding uh, along when you were talking probably about, you know, uh, trying to prove this is not a new thing, uh, that it happens in text, and maybe even the type of code switches. Uh, Jacopo? Yeah, I mean, in practically everything that Teresa said, I could recognize counterparts mm -hmm. in the Middle Ages. Yes. Uh, or in our own field, anyway. It, 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 the prejudice against switching actually existed then. Um, we, yes. we do have a few authors who actually apologize for having to use uh, words in Irish in the middle of a Latin text. Mm. Um, so it, it shows that certainly Latin was the really high register language. Irish probably had a lower register and therefore had its use had to be justified in some way. And just like tweets have that low level of formality that allows people to, to speak or, or write, rather, in this case, more a bit more naturally. That was also the feeling I had to some extent for the glosses as well, is that the language was a bit more informal and therefore could perhaps be seen as slightly closer to the spoken language. Um, it, it is, of course, a bit more complicated than that, but at least in some glosses, you can see that that is probably true. And even the example that Teresa provided as to the difficulty of uh, including verbs in uh, code switching, that has an exact match with my corpus, yeah. where verbs included in a switch are extremely rare. And in fact, uh, switching from Latin to Irish is much less common than switching from Irish to Latin uh, by inserting a few Latin words in the middle of a syntactic frame, which is essentially Irish. So it, it, it seems very, very similar uh, to, to what you were talking about. So if you also consider the fact that glosses you typically have a limited length yes. uh, and they are heavily abbreviated. <laughs> they are very glosses, similar, yes. Glosses are medieval tweaks. So that's, I suppose, Jacopo's takeaway from uh, <laughs> from that conversation, which is something that, you know, I have written about, too, and other people as well, uh, how informal writing might be closer to speech. But anyway, that was a fragment that I really enjoyed uh, uh, from that particular podcast. I've never thought of glosses quite in that way. <laughs> certainly has the potential to be quite uh, informal in the sense that they're their classroom stuff. Exactly, yeah. They're teaching practically. Yeah. Mika, it's been a wonderful talk. 
we're very grateful to you for coming. Thank you, and thank you for being the gracious interviewer. Oh, well, my turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, revenge. My turn. <laughs> but now we have time, I think, for any, uh, we've got five minutes left, if any, if there are any audience questions, or indeed just comments or thoughts, or anything anyone wants to say to Nika, um, do feel free to let us know. Very quiet so far. But um, if there are no immediate audience questions, I'll just ask you how technically difficult was this? It was. It was all right. Um, I like I said, I'm not a sound wizard, uh, or should I say, sound druid after <laughs> all these things. Um, but uh, I did have some help from my sister and my brother-in-law in you know selecting the right microphone and some additional material to keep, you know, the acoustics all right, and one introductory lesson in Garage Band, <laughs> which is a free program. So uh, if you if you invest in a good microphone, um, the editing uh, can be done uh, to a reasonable standard, uh, I think, for free. Um, so that's that's all right. So it was uh, it wasn't too bad. <laughs> you mean you and I could do it? <laughs> well you're not going that far uh i don't know <laughs> there's a lot of cursing involved at times when things will go wrong or you know something would disappear from your audio file anyway yeah yeah, yeah. but i did have fun with it as well <laughs> like for example when uh poor behal my colleague we were talking about earlier satire so i think it was justified but he did use you know a word that might not be seen as I don't know, uh, appropriate. So I could, you know, bleep it out. And I had fun with that. Uh, <laughs> pretend we're in some sort of, a, uh, I don't know, American show or something. Yeah, so you can have fun with it. Very well. Well, at least the audience are a little quiet. So is there an audience? Oh, there's definitely an audience. <laughs> okay, I can't see anyone. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So Nika, thank you very much indeed. It was a really informative talk and may I say the podcast one of the good things to come out of the lockdown period for us in Celtic Studies. Oh thank you. And I hope it will continue. You can find the podcast on our website and simply go to the Dias website on Celtic Studies and look for the podcast link on the right hand side of the page. And it's also on Spotify and iTunes so oh, right. it should be easy to track down. Yeah. Indeed. Just, I'm sure Google will, will yes. deliver it for you as well. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so that brings us to the end of proceedings. I have a couple of um, announcements, however, uh, just to, to round wrap up. Um, I'll stop sharing. Uh, yes, that's right. I'll share the screen. Okay. Okay. Um, so the first thing I have to talk about is an important matter, you may know that the government is holding a consultation about the future of research in Ireland. It's called Creating Our Future, a National Conversation on Research in Ireland. Now, this is a chance for the people of Ireland to have their say on how research should be supported in this country, and importantly, on what subjects should be uh, researched and supported. We think what we do in Dias and in the School of Celtic Studies deserves support. If we didn't, we wouldn't be here doing it. If you agree with us, and if you want Ireland's language and literature and history to be part of future research in this country, then we do earnestly ask you to make your views known to politicians and officials. Please go to the website, uh, www creatingourfuture.ie and have your say. Um, so that's creating our future. Again, if you Google that, I'm sure you will come to the site. And finally, there's just the other events in our Sawin Aga Science program uh, this year. If you would like to attend other events, you will find that there's an event tomorrow to mark International Dark Matter Day. 
Dr. Catherine Fries from the University of Texas will explore the dark side of the universe. And for those interested in Celtic studies in particular, um, on the evening of Tuesday, the 2nd of November, that's next Tuesday, we have um, Maureen Uwena, Greg Toner, and Sharon Arbuthnot, the authors of um, the very fine recent book on the history of Irish words from the Royal Irish Academy. And they will be talking to us about the ins and outs of Irish words through time. So I warmly recommend that talk for those interested in Celtic studies in particular. And beyond that, there will also be further events um, from the schools of physics on volcanoes and black holes. And again, full details are available on our website. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you for, to Nika in particular for her kindness in coming to and talking to us today. And thank you, the audience, for your support. Thank you.